The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, but does this mean that we should always distrust our emotions? In the Reformed churches, the answer is usually yes, but we don't believe this to be either biblically accurate or a healthy attitude to take. I'm Susanna Roundtree, this is Liz Sachs, and we are the Monstrous Regiment. So the Reformed world has, in our, in our opinion, a real problem with emotions. We constantly hear people tell us that emotions are a bad basis for making decisions. I'm sure that if you grew up in a church anything like mine, or you were around people who are anything like my friends, you 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 sometimes say, well, I feel that, and then somebody would correct you, you know, you're not supposed to feel anything, you're supposed to think. Um, and we also see it in other ways. One easy way to dismiss an argument is by accusing the person who makes it of being overly emotional. And this is this is something that particularly happens to women, but I've also seen it happen to men. Um, I saw it happen to my dad recently. He shared an image of the, uh, the Honduran refugee caravan on their way to the US. And the image was captioned with Jesus' words, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So believe it or not, a prominent Australian conservative commented on the image to tell my dad that he was making an argument based on emotion. So this is where I, this is where we're at in the modern church, where a direct quote of scripture can be dismissed with the words, oh, that's just an appeal to emotion. And as far as I can see, if that's, if that's where we're at in the church, where a direct application of scripture to a real world event can be dismissed as emotive reasoning that suggests we have a completely unscriptural view of the emotions right and it isn't just in that case either i've had the same thing happen to me as well um i've often as an abolitionist discussed immediatism and um i i'm sorry just had a moment and incrementalism um with people and i've had a lot of pro-lifers uh get upset with me and say you know we can't be immediatist because um, we got to take what we can get, um, save all we can now. And then when you come back at them with scripture to support the position that we need to end abortion now, that we need to protect the oppressed now, that we need to call for justice and that we need to, you know, let righteousness be as an ever flowing stream. You, you come back at them with scripture for those things. And I had one gentleman tell me, you're just too emotional about this. You know, your passion does you credit, but your emotion completely derails your arguments. And I told this guy, hey, how can you not be emotional about the murder of innocent human beings? How is this not something that you can be outraged at? You know, it's it's positively sociopathic. But our response is, unless you can give me a well-reasoned enough argument, I'm not going to believe what scripture says on this topic. And it's very upsetting, especially in cases such as the refugees from Honduras and you know, the human beings who are being slaughtered in the womb daily to the tune of, what is it, over 60 million now, you know, and the response is, you're too emotional about this. We should be emotional. We should be emotional about a lot of things, I think. And um, it's just fascinating to me that in both the 
examples that you and I have given just now, um, in both cases, a person was accused of being too emotional after quoting scripture. So this this suggests to me that uh, we we have a view of emotions that is completely unscriptural. If our if our um, instinctive response is to say, "Oh well, you just quoted scripture. You're being too emotional." Yeah. So. I, sorry, go ahead, Susan. No, you go on. I was going to say, scripture actually supports the use of emotion to be a catalyst for ending injustice. Mm. Um, multiple times, you look at men in scripture like um, Nehemiah, who's absolutely brokenhearted over the state of his city. Um, you look at men in scripture like David, who's brokenhearted over his own sin. Um, Jonathan, who's brokenhearted over his father's sin. And the way that he's treated David, who God has chosen to secede Saul as king, I'm, I'm there. Jesus, Jesus, who wept over the fact that he had to die for our sins, over the sacrifice that he had to make, over the weight of it all. Scripture shows emotion as a catalyst for needing to remedy an injustice over and over and over again. Exactly, and often this is emotion that breaks out in uncontrollable ways that quite often um, either the person feeling the emotion or the person or people around the person who's showing emotion look at them and say you know you, you completely lost it I mean you mentioned Nehemiah when he was when when he was serving the king um, at the at the start of his story you know he was he was so sad that he couldn't he couldn't keep his sadness off his face and that was what triggered the king to ask him um, why he was feeling that way, which is how he ended up getting this amazing commission to rebuild the temple. It's because he had emotion that was, you know, stronger than his ability to act like it wasn't happening. Um, When David danced in front of the Ark of the Lord, the person who wanted wanted him to show more dignity and control himself better was the, um, (laughs) was was the one at fault in the situation, Mikkel, his wife. And, you know, I, I, I think when I think about emotions shown in scripture, I think about, um, I mean, at one stage, David in the um, Psalms, David refer, refers to himself roaring in the King James translation. Why are you so far from the voice of my roaring? Um, that's not a, that's not a passionless term. When Jonathan warned David about Saul wanting to kill him, it says they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And all through the Psalms, um, he talks about being up all night weeping and crying out to God. All night I make my bed to swim. Like, I've gone through hard times myself, but I know that I've never had quite the depth of emotion to literally remain awake crying all night. That is, that is pretty, um, that is pretty yeah. strong emotion. It's affecting. Um, yeah. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. Horror has taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. The language of scripture, especially the poetic language that you find in the Psalms, the Song of Songs, um, the prophets, it's just full of passionate emotion of every kind. Right. And he even, I think, at points talks about how the emotion affects him physically. It's not something that he can just shut off and on um, and say, I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm going to think about this reasonably. David never does that. He never says, I'm going to, 
uh, shut this off and think about it reasonably. He goes through his emotion. He expresses his emotion. And at times where he finds his emotion airs, David then corrects it with truth. But he doesn't exactly. shut it off. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when people when people think about emotion, I, t- I think they tend to get scared of it because it is such a powerful um force and it can truly um make a huge difference on how you act and react to things and so they think because it's so powerful and because it can control you so much you should not um you you should be um you should be very wary of it and suspicious of it um i don't think that's a scriptural view at all i think the scriptural view is that emotions need to be in submission to the uh, to scripture and as long as they're in submission to scripture it doesn't matter how strong they are because they're going to lead us right <laughs> if if we feel correct emotion about things like injustice and murder then and and our definition of murder and injustice and of all kinds is um is defined by god's law then we're not going to we're not going to sin in having even very strong emotions about these things. And the the reverse is true also where, um, I'll admit, our emotions can lead us wrong if they're not moored to the truth of Scripture, but our reason can also lead us wrong too. Have you ever met an atheist who's argued solely on the base of reason that evolution is true or there is no God or, or any other premise that he makes that directly contradicts the word of God? his reason has led him wrong and he'll insist all day long. But I I know this because I can think it, I can, you know, use the scientific method or whatever else he says. Um, So our emotions can lead us wrong when unmoored from scripture. Our reason can lead us wrong when unmoored from scripture. So when we imbalance the two um, and disconnect it from scripture on either side, like assuming that emotion, for instance, is inherently evil somehow and can't possibly be led by scripture, so better to jettison it, we are pretty much giving like a foothold to sin in, in that particular area, I think. Mm. Yeah, and there, are, there are, I think there are historical reasons, which I'll get into a bit later, about um, why in the Reformed Church we've made an idol of reason. But the fact is that uh, that reason and emotion are both human faculties. They're both equally fallen, and they're both equally capable of being redeemed and disciplined and brought into submission to Scripture. Um, so one, one of the things we wanted to talk about in this podcast was a seminal article by Michael Minkoff, Jr. It's titled, How Christian Rationalism Turned Me Into a Psychopath or a Biblical Defense of Feelings. And you can find that on michaelminkoff.com. I think we'll have to um, put a link to that article when we post this podcast. But I I think this article is important because it spends some time talking about the main proof text, Jeremiah 17 verses 9 to 10, the main proof text that Christians use to... um, to create a culture that's suspicious to emotion towards emotion. Right. I've used it myself. <laughs> I've, I've gone around saying, don't rely on your, I mean, seriously, this has only been, I, I want to say 
been past like since being an abolitionist where i've realized oh hey emotion actually does have a point here it was actually that argument with that fellow that made me go wait a second oh yeah because as i was arguing with him i was realizing the truth of it but i would go around and say guys guys the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked why are you relying on your feelings right so here's, I'm going to, I'm just going to read a bit from Michael's article because it's just so good. He explains that in Old Testament culture, the seat of the intellect was not the brain or mind. It was the heart, the inner man. It wasn't until much later that the organ of the intellect began to migrate to the brain and the organ of the emotions eventually changed from the Old Testament kidneys or reins to the New Testament heart. So in the Old Testament, when Jeremiah was writing these words about the heart being deceitful and desperately sick, um, a more correct translation that captures the sense of what he's talking about would say the uh, the brain, the mind, the inner man is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Michael Minkoff goes on and says, the word heart in verse 9 doesn't actually refer to the deceit of your emotions. It refers to the seat of your intellect and will, your inner man. If anything, when properly interpreted, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 indicates that the intellect, the intellect is the most deceitful capacity of man. In modern terms, it could easily be translated, the mind is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. So, so that's, that's the... That's the uh, more accurate translation of this Bible verse, which means that once once you acknowledge that, you do, I think, have to rethink, okay, so where did this idea come from that uh, that emotions are mis- misleading? When did that happen and why did that happen? So let's talk about it from a historical perspective. Um, conservatives are constantly looking back to the past for icons of masculinity, um, sort of like the memes that go around every so often. You've seen the one with Cary Grant on the left and some like effeminate millennial on the right and the caption, what happened? Well, the irony is that Cary Grant was bisexual, of course. Um, but another of the ironies is that in the past, we didn't have anywhere near the kind of views on emotion that we do now. Um, Take the medieval knights, for instance, great modern conservative symbol of masculinity. Well, when you actually read the knightly literature, the 11th and 12th century chansons de geste, and I do when I can, you find that medieval people were a lot more comfortable with their emotions than we are. Um, One of them is called The Song of the Cid. It's about El Cid, the um, Spanish um, knight who helped with the Reconquista. He's described as having, and I quote, a heart as soft as his beard. And here's a quote from the Song of Roland where King Charlemagne has found his nephew Roland dead on the battlefield. He says, methinks I've not one friend left under sky. Kinsmen I have, but none that is thy like. He tears his hair with both hands for despite. By hundred thousand the French for sorrow sigh. There's none of them but utters grievous cries. Alas, fair France, how desolate are you? I am so wretched, would I had perished too? He tears his beard that is so white of hue, tears with both hands his white hair by the roots, and of the French an hundred thousand swoon. Yeah. 
So medieval Manly nuts. Right there. Yeah, uh, and synchronized mass swooning. I just love that. <laughs> so, so medieval knights not exactly have uh, stiff up, stiff upper lips. Now, that's a translation made by our girl Dorothy Sayers, and she wrote in her introduction to the poem. There are fashions and sensibility, as in everything else. The idea that a strong man should react to great personal and national calamities by a slight compression of the lips and by silently throwing his cigarette into the fireplace is of very recent origin. By the standards of feudal epic, Charlemagne's behaviour is perfectly correct. Fainting, weeping and lamenting is what the situation calls for. Right. C.S. Lewis, sorry, were you going to say something? <laughs> nope, I'm, I'm just like sitting here dumbfounded. She's entirely correct. Exactly. Um, C.S. Lewis, also a medieval scholar, also noted the same phenomenon. He wrote in a letter to someone, by the way, don't weep inwardly and get a sore throat. If you must weep, weep, a good, honest howl. I suspect we, and especially my sex, don't cry enough nowadays. Aeneas and Hector and Beowulf, Roland and Lancelot, blubbered like schoolgirls, so why shouldn't we? Yep, straight on. And I think if you look at uh, the Lord of the Rings as well, Tolkien, also shows his characters showing great emotion, mm. appropriate emotion for the situation at hand. Exactly, and yeah, you get you get a good perspective on the quirks of our modern culture that we take for granted if you um, if you read outside that. So I'm right. I'm not saying I'm not saying we need to take uh, these medieval chansons de geste as a model for godly emotion. You take the Bible for that, but. This is a lot closer to the kind of emotion we see in scripture. And it makes it clear that we didn't always have this very rationalistic, very anti-emotion bias. It wasn't there in ancient Hebrew culture. It wasn't there in medieval culture. And if you trust C.S. Lewis, it wasn't even there in pagan Greco-Roman culture. So where did it come from? Uh, in the book Total Truth, which is an excellent book uh, by Nancy Piercy, she suggests that the bias, this bias stems from the Enlightenment. So in the Middle Ages, you had thinkers like Thomas Aquinas and other scholastic theologians who were trying to find a, a place for pagan Greco-Roman thought in the Christian worldview. They were trying to um, harmonise harmonize the two in a way that would uh, retain the um, ultimacy of Scripture. But they wound up creating a divide between faith and reason. To quote Piercy, in matters of religion, we cannot consider what seems rational. Religion derives solely from revelation accepted by faith. And so this, she, she explains that this divide between faith and reason is what gave birth to the Enlightenment, which was a humanist movement beginning in the 1700s, which was trying to completely emancipate reason from revelation. They said, okay, so revelation applies to faith. Well, that means that reason applies to the rest of life. So we can pretty much find out the, the meaning of everything in life except religion just from using reason so the enlightenment philosophers believed they could find truth from reason alone divorced from revelation and they saw the universe as a big materialistic machine that could be reasoned and um so they were basically trying to serve two masters ultimately god and man mm -hmm. at the same time and where does that always put you at you pick one or the other exactly exactly and and that and that was exactly what happened 
these philosophers began to ignore everything that wasn't subject to rationalistic scientific inquiry because after all if faith can only be known through revelation then why are we going to spend any time trying to understand revelation in a systematic way so revelation couldn't be rationally studied and neither could morality or artistic ideas like beauty or create creativity or the human mind or our emotions so this is what nancy Piercy calls a two-story view of reality you've got these two different completely separate spheres of life and um so in the lowest story this the um the area of um nature you have matter you have reason you have science you have verifiable fact whereas in the upper story you have mind spirit emotion art revelation and faith so for the enlightenment the lower story was the only one that was really worth bothering with which actually did give rise to a bit of a cultural backlash in romanticism and romanticism did value the upper story this the sphere of spirit emotion and art but it also bought into the notion that we ought to have these two separate spheres of life at all and so they tended not to be so interested in reason and um science and logic and that kind of thing I think too, um, se separately related, I was reading a book the other day, um, it's called The Ancient City, I think it's by Fustel Coulanges. Coulanges. Yes, yeah. Coulanges. Um, and I was reading what he was saying about the, the pagan origins of how we view the dead and things like that, and I, I think, that it, and, and how they grieved them and, and mourned them and had funerals for them, and I think in reading that there was a realization that there are so many things that we have sort of almost attached emotion to oh that's pagan thinking like like we've automatically relegated emotion and art you know like oh you know that pagan hollywood we basically have have divided those two realms and said the the lower realm that's perfectly you know like with with cessationism and all that we've we've made the lower realm to be um, acceptable and um, able to submit to the Bible, but the upper realm we've treated as pagan and oh, just don't touch that because it's not going to go anywhere good because that can't be submitted to scripture, which is kind of <laughs> taking an axe to Christ's lordship in a sense. Yeah, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and and on top of that. You even have the human race being spl split in two and slotted into each story, um, and it was it was decided that men were rational, scientific, trustworthy, while women were religious and artistic and emotional. And um, one of one of the great passages from R.J. Rushdini's uh, Institutes of Biblical Vo Law, Volume One, he points out that this this um, redefinition of the sexes resulted in a legal revolution in the 1700s and 1800s in which women lost a lot of the legal and property rights which they had enjoyed during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, not many people realised that you that um, the Victorian age was an unusually bad one for women and that for centuries beforehand they had enjoyed much greater, um, much greater legal rights and authority. So, mm. so emotion got linked to women. You know, as if men are never influenced by their emotions, and it 
and it got shunted off into the upper story of reality, which is the sphere of airy-fairy things that we can't trust and can't base serious life decisions on, because the only valid way of making decisions is based on reason and fact. Now, what I've seen in the church is that we've actually responded to this in one of two different ways. Large, I believe large swathes of evangelicalism have embraced the upper story view um, they have this romantic, emotionalistic, irrational view of the faith. And they will say things like, you know, faith has nothing to do with reason. So, you know, you need to leave your logic at the door when you come to church. Um, you know, this is this is something completely different. And, and they're also often the ones who are going to um, insist that we shouldn't try to change the world around us because that would be to do violence to, I guess, the nature of the faith, which is mostly about going to heaven after you die meanwhile you have the reformed churches and they're more likely to insist on this arid spiritless emotionless religion they've they've embraced the lowest story um instead of looking at this unscriptural um, distinction between the two stories and saying you know we don't want to have any part of this uh, michael minkoff says that the story began when the Protestant reformers inadvertently adopted a form of Christian rationalism as a corrective for the, at least perceived, mystical vagaries, sens sensory superstitions, material corruptions, and aesthetic de deceptions of the Roman Catholic Church. Yep. And so he traces it back to the Reformation, and, you know, the reformers would have looked at this uh, nat nature, grace, revelation, reason distinction that was in the roman church and say well you know we we believe that um we need to use our minds and faith is not just a matter of revelation that doesn't apply to the rest of the life and so they wound up driving into the other ditch on the other side of the road and that's what we often see in the reformed churches it's a replacement of the holy spirit and his revelation and his guidance with yet another book of church order will rise <laughs> Well, and also with, um, I'm going to really get in it deep here, but um, also with the, the we would place the Holy Spirit with elders and polity and those types of things as well in a more formal ecclesiology, where we kind of assume that elders can tell you what you can and can't do, what you can and can't believe. Um, and so we, in that rationalism, you should believe people who think better than you and know better than you. Yeah, and it assumes that the Holy Spirit doesn't actually speak to ordinary people. And so I think I, I think that with the, the, the upper and lower story divide, you've got a very clear um, you've got a very clear divide between the Christians who believe that they will hear from the Holy Spirit and the Christians who believe they'll never hear from the Holy Spirit. Um, goes right along with that um, that approach to emotionalism versus rationalism that split between yeah clergy laity divide mm -hmm. yep okay so we've got this two-story view of emotion and reason and we've just spent some time explaining where that came from and why it's false so what's the biblical answer well i don't believe the bible ever separates the two according to scripture we have to know what's right and we have have an obligation to apply it in a rational uh, systematic manner to all of our life but we also have an obligation to feel very strongly about it. Psalm 119 is the perfect example. Um, the psalmist receives concrete law by revelation. 
and then he applies it to his everyday life in concrete, rational ways. And he, he responds emotionally, Oh, how I love thy law. I will delight myself in thy statutes. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto my, thy judgments at all times. Thy testimonies also are my delight. My soul melteth for heaviness. And the Lord answered and said unto David, You're appealing to emotion. Get a grip. <laughs> and David said, You're right. I'll never be emotional again. No, wait, he went back to saying he delighted in God's law. Yeah. Yeah, so God um, wants us to feel strong emotion. He does. And he even... Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm losing my brain a little bit. Jesus says, when he specifically says uh, about the uh, two greatest commands, he says that you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He does not leave anything out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and let's not forget that love is, I know we're, we're all used to saying, you know, love isn't an emotion, love is a commitment, but love is also an emotion. It's it's an emotion that's surrounded by a commitment. Right. Well, and also, I, I believe Michael Minkoff in his article even addressed that particular scripture, um, how in some um, translations, uh, he, he looks at, he contrasts what Jesus is quoting and he says that the one translation like adds and mind and in mm-hmm. the end luke was it luke who did that in his wasn't a translation it was in luke's book i think yeah and he was speaking specifically in his article about um why that may have been that luke was attempting to cover all the bases for his readership the, the people of that culture so that they would understand that it included all of those things that it was not a um uh, a very narrow focus for just one or the other, but that it included yeah. your heart and your mind. Yeah, that you had to you had to love God with every faculty that you have. Yeah. So yeah, we've all we've already talked about the fact that um, both emotion and reason can lead you astray, and both emotion and reason can be in submission to the Word of God. If God wants us to feel strong emotions about things, then the problem is not whether you have strong emotions. The problem is whether you're having the um, the emotional reactions that God wants you to have in a certain situation. We're supposed to respond to his law with love and delight. We're supposed to respond to um, injustice and law-breaking with horror. So, so emotion is every bit as valid as reason. And as Michael Minkoff points out, if we ignore emotion as a God-given and necessary part of our personality, one possibility is that we'll succeed. We'll repress our emotions to the point where we've become functional psychopaths. Uh, we'll no longer be able to feel the emotions which God requires of us. And um, yeah, the, Michael has this, uh, here's another quote from him. I'll let him tell it in his own words. I started to realize what a monster I had become. There was truly no wickedness that was beyond me. I felt absolutely no remorse when I hurt people. I could cheat, lie, and steal without even a tremor of feeling. I could use people mercilessly and sleep peacefully afterward. From the outside, I looked as serenely knowledgeable and Christian as ever, but I was a cruel and calculating thinking machine. In other words, I was an operational psychopath. Yeah. And I think um, that is something that, uh, encourages behavior. I don't, I don't know this this whole entire thing. This reliance on rational thinking encourages behavior in homes and in families and in churches and in the public sphere as well, where there is a 
a sense of detachment from what we ought to cherish and hold dear. And how can we disciple our children? How can we disciple um, people around us in the church, the body of believers, the bride of Christ, if we are divorcing emotion from what it is that we are teaching them? I can't divorce emotion when I bend down and I say to my daughter, hey, I love you. Let me teach you the scriptural truth. I can't divorce emotion as she's like a three-year-old. She's as emotional as the day is long. So a lot of times she needs to be overcorrected in the other direction. <laughs> but at the same time, um, her sense of injustice is very real and very physical. She feels unjust when her brother has hit her. It mm. needs to be corrected. I can't divorce emotion from that. Otherwise, I completely take my discipleship and throw it right out the window and teach mm. my children also to be functional sociopaths. I'm teaching them to reason through everything. And if they can do that, then they can be just like the atheist reason themselves into whatever they want to do. Exactly. Um, I, I wasn't originally going to do that, but you just reminded me of this comment on Michael's article from a from someone who's actually a very dear friend of mine. Um, and and they, they write, brilliant article, our family have been quietly and sometimes not so quietly battling the cold rationalism of the Reformed Church for over 30 years now, we have observed a chillingly close resemblance to the Catholic Church in essence when it comes to the individual and his or her relationship with Christ. Our major concern is the sexual abuse which which flows far and wide from the Reformed Churches here. Why are we tempted to be surprised? Right. And I know, I know, I know the situation to which he's referring. And yeah, um, if you can, if 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 you can divorce your emotions from your um, reason and if you can suppress the godly emotions that God tells you to feel, then you're going to be able to reason yourself into all sorts of sin. Right. We, we will no longer feel repugnant for what we ought to feel repugnance for, um, empathy for what we ought to feel empathy for. We will no longer be able to feel that something ought to be corrected. Um, mm. Those feelings are powerful in terms of revelation of the Holy Spirit, in terms of conviction. When we're convicted, it's not like a reasonable idea bubble pops at our head. It, that's not what happens. We don't go, oh, oh my goodness. I suddenly understand the universe and everything. No, it's when an emotion sparks and we go, oh, I am grieved for my sin. Exactly. Another thing you just reminded me of was that um, passage in Romans, I believe it's 12. And I was talking about this just the other day with regards to my novel, uh, which takes place during the First Crusade. Uh, but there's there's a passage in there where it says, you know, bless, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who harm you. But Paul goes straight on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so one of the functions of our emotions is to cultivate empathy. Right. And yeah, empathy gets empathy isn't something else. It gets a really bad rap um, in a lot of these more rationalistic Christian circles. Um, empathy is the capacity to feel what another person is feeling without necessarily agreeing with their motivations or with their beliefs. But right. it's something that we're supposed to be able to do. And like I said, Paul mentions it in the same breath with loving and blessing our enemies. We need to be able, you know, I, I do believe that one of the first steps towards 
reconciling the world to Christ is being able to feel what other people are feeling, to understand why they're rejoicing and why they're weeping and to be able to um, come alongside them and find the injustice or the justice which they are um, suffering from or looking for, depending. It enables us to reach out to them. It it enables us to reach out to them because we understand what's motivating them. And we understand their their needs too, and not just their motivations, but their needs um, where we can, I've had this realization in the past week where we found ourselves in a situation um, helping someone who is in need. And I realized that when we as Christians are in that situation where we can be empathetic and where we can find someone who has a need and and reach out to them in a very material way, that that service gives us authority in their life. Um, That service gives them a reason to come back to us and say, so, you know, I see your love. And I see the way that you follow Christ, and I know it's genuine. Teach me this thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. When we feel empathy for someone, again, that's where emotion is the 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 point that like pushes us onward. I don't want to say crux. Um, what's the word I am looking for? Catalyst. That's again yes. where their emotion is the catalyst that presses us onward, that empathy is the catalyst that says, I need to help this person. And as we're helping that person, that service gives us, um, gives us the authority to preach the word of God to them. Yes, exactly. In a very real and timely fashion, because we're not just preaching at them. Like we're not, not that street Mm. preaching is a bad thing. It has its place, but this is a completely different kind of discipleship and preaching where it's not a random dude that you don't know on a street corner yelling, repent. God can use that to convict somebody and bring them to a knowledge of their sin and grief over their sin. But it's another way that God uses to cause us to convict someone and bring them to a knowledge of of their need for him where they see real genuine love and care and they go, teach me what this love means and how it spools out into all your life and how it should spool out into mine. As you live the gospel, they want to hear the gospel. Yes, exactly. And so people, people who want to cut themselves off from emotion and feeling are just going to miss out on all this. But there's another possibility that comes when you try and, um, when you try and downplay emotion and this is something that I've seen a lot of, and it's particularly noticeable in men, probably because men have so much more social pressure to suppress their emotions. But I've seen so many men losing their cool, making blatantly emotional-driven arguments while blaming the people around them for being irrational and emotional. And they just don't see the irony. It's pretty funny. Right. It is. I've seen it too. <laughs> Yeah, and I think people are uncomfortable with the idea of being emotional. So when they are being emotional, they go into complete denial. The result, the result is decisions that are made out of under the control of out of control, immature emotion, which is a bad thing. And it won't change unless and until we acknowledge the biblical function of emotion in our lives. Emotions have a real purpose, and it's only when we're open to feeling and acknowledging the importance of emotion that we can even begin to ask questions like, is this the emotion I should be feeling right now? Or should I be feeling a different emotion? 
is what I'm feeling at the moment a godly thing to feel? And do I need to repent of feeling the wrong kind of emotion? I I think if our emotions are tied to the truth of God's word, then our emotions will be used as a catalyst to do things for the glory of God. Whereas if our emotions are not tied to the truth of God's word, and we do that thing where we reject them as pagan outright, and Mm -hmm. then we give that that ground, so to speak, um, Mm -hmm. and that ground is taken over and those emotions then become a self-driven thing. That's why you see... Um, men who have all this pressure not to feel emotion and they have no clue how to control it. They have no clue how to to place it under the lordship of Christ. They have no clue what that even looks like or that the Bible even speaks to that. And so um, automatically their emotions are a self, an inward driven thing. It's not a God um, driven thing. It's a me driven thing. So my emotions are no longer, I feel I am feelingly alive to these things that that God would have me do or these things that God sees as unjust. It's not a Nehemiah type emotion. It's a um, it's a Saul type emotion that says everyone is threatening me and I'm just, you know, the the strength of the emotion is still there. Mm -hmm. But the focus of the emotion is me, 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 what I want. Exactly. And that's what happens when you cede any area of your life to basically the devil. Mm hmm. In, in my experience, the people I know who are most emo- most vulnerable to emotional manipulation, you know, whether it's, it's through media or through other people, um, it's the, the ones who are most vulnerable to emotional ma- manipulation are the ones who most pride themselves on being rational. Um, what I've found, I'm, I'm a person who feels a lot of powerful emotion, and i found that that actually makes me much more resistant to emotional manipulation, um, much less likely to... Um, you, you know, when I'm feeling, I, when, I, when I feel this barrage of emotions from like a movie or a book, I'm very skeptical of it because I, I, <laughs> I know what my emotions are supposed to be doing because I have such a close relationship with them. Right. You, you Just, sense it's false. Yeah. It, it takes someone who's well-trained in logic to spot an invalid argument. And I believe it also takes someone who's been well-trained in feeling to spot an invalid feeling. Right. Yeah, that moment in the movies when you're sitting there and the music swells and you're supposed to cry, but you're like, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have that moment a lot. <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah, you're right. It is. It is when you are trained in emotions that you recognize what is fake and uh, mm. what is pressed upon you rather than what is uh, real and what is uh, pushed by right desires and right reactions by the holy spirit yep mm. so I, I wanted to finish by sharing something important that i've learned about emotions over the course of a somewhat emotional life <laughs> um I, i'm i'm someone yeah who feels a lot of emotion and I know that emotions can cause real pain and suffering to say nothing of stress and even illness. Um, Emotional pain can cripple your productivity, especially if you work with your mind. And it can also cripple your ability to minister to others. I mean, I know we, we hear a lot, Oh, you, you know, are you feeling bad? What, you know, just, just focus on serving others. Well, guess what? Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes you just have to take the time to grieve. And so when you're when you're experiencing deep emotional pain, it can be really easy to feel like you're a bad Christian. 
You know that God is testing your faith and building your character because the Bible says so, but you still feel grief. And so you beat yourself up about it. You can't serve others. You feel like you're um, having a bad attitude towards God. You're thinking to yourself, if I, if I had more faith, I would be feeling happy that this was happening to me. Well, you might remind yourself that some Christians have real problems, you know. Some Christians are being stoned to death by ISIS or starving in Africa. And, you know, we, we think of ourselves, we think of all our problems as being hashtag first world problems. Right. So what I found is that this is complete nonsense. And it'll bury you under a load of false guilt. I actually right. think pure, I actually think purity culture has done a particularly amazing job of demonizing this kind of uh, emotional suffering. Um, there, there's a book out there called Emotional Purity, which I think is a totally unscriptural concept. God created us to have emotions, and we're not guilty when we feel them. And having our hearts broken or our hopes dashed are sources of real suffering that we should never despise. And these experiences are not going to ruin us forever or make, make it impossible for us to have a good marriage later on. Right. Or, or to have a good anything later on. And there's an appropriate sense of grief over things that are truly grievous where you recognize that. Um, and I mean... God acknowledges that grief and he grieves with us. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's exactly. he's close to the Russian spirit. He binds up our wounds. Like we're allowed to feel pain. We're allowed to feel grief. We're allowed to be brokenhearted at the effects of sin in this world. And God knows that we're feeling that. He comforts us in that. And we can go to him for that comfort. But that doesn't mean that we need to constantly have an ear-to-ear -ear smile and the joy of the Lord will just banish our grief away. It doesn't work that way. We're allowed to grieve. And scripture says multiple times, not only that God's near to us when we grieve, but that we're supposed to grieve with one another when we're grieving. And I will admit that there are times in my past when I failed miserably in that. And I immediately felt awful because I knew I was so uncomfortable with someone's emotion that it stopped me from grieving with them and that was sin on my part to not in the moment say this person needs the ministry of me grieving with them instead mm -hmm. I just kind of like nervously laughed it off and moved on to the next topic and I feel incredibly ashamed of that as I ought to be because mm -hmm. there is a ministry of grieving with those who need to grieve exactly and not only that but if you are grieving, this just, you know, Im imagine that you're so sick that you couldn't get out of bed. Well, that is not the time to be thinking about how you can minister to others in physical ways. And I believe the same right. thing goes for emotion. Right. If, if you're tr truly suffering from emotional grief and trauma, then, it, you know, the most, the most um, service-minded thing that you can do for the people around you is feel that emotion feel that grief, take the time, be ministered to, right. and and eventually get to the place, not right away, but eventually get to the place where you can do like it, it says in 2 Corinthians, and comfort others with the comfort which you have received. I've always struggled most with my emotions when I felt guilty for feeling them. But one day I came to a, a major realisation. I was thinking about the Bible verse, Colossians 1.24, where Paul says that in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I realized something. I realized, hang on, how can I fill up some how can I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions if I'm not actually feeling afflicted? 
How can I be refined through suffering if I don't actually suffer? If you find a millionaire five, $5, would he notice? So in order to suffer, whether physically or emotionally, we need to be able to feel the pain. And if we don't feel the pain, then we don't get the benefit of the suffering. And if we feel guilty for feeling the pain, then we're laboring under a burden of false guilt, which we'll never be rid of. And this doesn't mean either that we like seek out suffering, like, oh, you know what? God's just called you to suffer, so I'm not going to help you in this position you're in. It means that we bear suffering rightly and we do not deny that we are suffering, but that our understanding of what the suffering is, where the suffering has come from, and what the purpose of it is allows us to grieve and to, um, if necessary, make steps in order to relieve ourselves of that suffering or for others to relieve, to relieve us of that suffering. I'm thinking of cases where somebody is suffering because of abuse, for instance. Um, so we don't look at that person and we don't say, God just calls some people to suffer. And I have actually heard that. Um, That's a Buddhist like, idea. Right. It's, it's incredibly unfeeling. Um, but... So, like, we don't just look at that person and say, mm, God just calls some people to suffer. I'm so sorry he's called you. And then skip on our merry way. No, we recognize with them the depth of their suffering, the cause for their suffering, and the appropriate action taken to relieve them of their suffering. So, as they're being abused, we say, why are you suffering? And they say, well, I'm being abused this way. And you say, well, how can I help you? get out of this situation there is an actual purpose for recognizing suffering it's exactly. not just exactly. in feeling it and growing from it and learning from it that there is that i'm not going to minimize that but it also there is recognizing it and remedying it if we don't feel that suffering how can we remedy it exactly so emotional pain is just one of the ways that god sanctifies us and it's not something to be ashamed of or guilty about it can be a catalyst to action, and it's something that we need to embrace, feel, we, something we need to hear God in and move on. We need to feel our emotions in the context of God's word, which means, first of all, allowing ourselves to feel. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up, Liz? No, I think we've, uh, I, I think we've covered most of, of what I, I had hoped to uh, speak of and yeah great well thank you all for tuning in to episode 17 of the monstrous regiment thank you for listening to the monstrous regiment we hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for christ's kingdom terrible as an army with banners The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.